0: I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 19th, 2021 edition of Digging Out. This program offers us a means for getting past November 3rd, 2020, January 6th, as we collectively clear the debris from the last four days, four weeks, four years, four decades, and four centuries. My guest today is acclaimed director, performer and educator Brooke Aston, bringing Ordinary Days, a musical written by Adam Gong, a film stage production at a special outdoor drive-in venue in Tustin, Orange County. As well as she posts us on how artists are resuming their creative work as the pandemic dims ever so slowly. Brooke Aston is a graduate of Cal State University Fullerton's musical theater program, and an alumna and current faculty of The Young Americans. She began traveling as a performer at the age of 16 and is called California, New York, and Las Vegas, her home while touring, doing regional theater, working on cruise ships, and singing in bands. Her extensive performance career includes directing, writing, and producing many variety shows, including a cabaret with the fifth national tour of All Shook Up, Ruby Lewis, Blue-Eyed Soul with Broadway Nights, Performing Arts, and her own headliner shows. Brooke recently directed The Wizard of Oz at Mysterium and All Shook Up for Southgate Productions in Brea, California. Her performance catalog includes a national tour of All Shook Up, Visiting Bulda at Frozen Live at the Hyperion, multiple appearances at the Hollywood Bowl, and opening for bands like The Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. She has experience on camera as the host of a daily morning show in web series and has participated in and produced numerous media projects during the pandemic. We are taping this on July 16th. She comes to us today from her home in Placentia, Orange County, California. Welcome to Digging Out, Brooke Aston.
1: Hi, everybody. Hi, Claudia.
0: (laughs) Hello. Well, we're making the whole focus here, the ordinary days, the main focus, but we're also going to be digging out the debris of what the creative process has been like over the last year and a half with keeping the creative process, keeping the production, logistics, beating them down to a manageable level, keeping the audience connection. So I want though for first for everybody to have a chance to think about their opportunity to see the musical as a drive-in event at Mess Hall Market at Flight in Tustin on July 24th at 8 p.m. I can't wait to honk my horn and parts (laughs) of the production I enjoyed so much. So I want to talk about some of the elements of the play before we get into the logistics. Yeah. So I thought a through line for the musical was ephemera. Oh, that's
1: interesting. Yeah, we I spent a lot of time thinking about reflection and um, how it's it's set in the middle 2000s, but it's so reflective of the time that we're going through now. So I like that ephemera.
0: Ooh. Well, because of it's a prop, it's a backstory, it's a connection between your four characters. And so I I just wanted to put one of those elements out there. And another, if I may, was it a conscious kind of Element the a body positive consciousness.
1: Um, as a director, I've really dedicated myself to four principles, and that is diversity, equity, meaning that people who are not necessarily um, financially stable are able to access being able to create their art, body positivity, and disability visibility. So it wasn't specifically to this production that we kept it body positive. That is something that I strive as a casting person and as a director.
0: Well, there, they are such incredible and lovely actors and it's wonderful to see. I had a chance listeners to get a preview of the musical that will be presented on film. It's set in the Wayward Artist, the Cal State Fullerton building theater space is like 63 seats. It's uh, it was very nostalgic to see them using that with all the cool things that you did to move the scenery and the themes along in there. So and have you done produced anything in the Wayward Artist Theater? Well, that's a
1: fun story. I have a long history with the uh, grand central space, but not with the wayward artists. So I went to Cal State Fullerton and got my BFA in musical theater. I was actually one of the first BFA musical theater students to produce a full run of my one woman show, my cabaret at the end of my tenure there in that space. And then now, of course, that's just normal. And I always get to say, well, I was the first one. (laughs) Okay. I have another fun story in that space as well. My husband and I have actually known each other for 26 years. And back when we had that space, long before the Wayward Artist was a twinkle in Craig, the artistic director's eye, um, My husband, who was just my very good friend at the time, and I were part of a theater company, and we begged Cal State Fullerton to let us use the space, and they did, and he directed a play that I wrote.
0: And 18 years later, we got married and have two kids. And so many productions. that There will be more productions than children, possibly, in this (laughs) merger of talents. Yes. Yeah, so let's talk about two. Now, Adam Guan is both the playwright and lyricist for Ordinary Days. And wow, is it tight. I think Mr. Sondheim needs to step aside and let Adam take over. (laughs)
1: It is really cool to um, be able to do the work of these upcoming artists. I mean, upcoming artists. He wrote this back in 2006, but, you know, there's so much talent out there. So to be able to spotlight these artists that are writing this really contemporary musical theater style is so fun. And I was thrilled to get to do it.
0: It shows. That's the least that I can say. And so did you, I mean, you can prepare to some extent. There's all those phases that the director would cast remotely, I guess, or maybe you can see them. My neighbor, Jane Page, who's a director, I've seen her doing the casting in her front yard during the pandemic. But there are so many things that you can do prior to having an in-person kind of enterprise. So when were you able to get the actors in the same place?
1: Yeah. So we had our auditions on Zoom. That's correct. We did them remotely. We had people submit headshots and resumes and, you know, it was lovely. We had people submitting who were on the other side of the country and we thought, oh, well, it'll be our first endeavor back. And, you know, we won't have a lot of interest. We had to add another day of auditions. We had to add hours of, of time to see everybody who really wanted to be seen. And we still didn't get to see everyone that we wanted to see. So it was really fun fun it was an interesting experiment to do things on zoom and then of course you have your initial audition and then you'll do a callback well this isn't sung through musical there's no red scenes and of course the challenge with being there
0: are no red scenes at all it is moves along strictly through yep. song it's a incredible
1: yeah, and so how do you, with, with I don't know, you know, there's a lag on a conference call, on a video call, there's a lag. So we can't play music and have them sing. So of course we sent them recordings of little snippets of the songs, but then I just had to go digging for what are called open scenes, and have them read with each other and have them do um, scenes with each other that I thought were reflective of the kind of relationships that are in the play that had nothing to do with the play. And that's how we landed on our cast. Um, we did not meet in a room together until the very first day of rehearsal.
0: And the relationships are, I don't think fluid is quite the word, but there there are different aspects of the pairings, of the relationships in there. So the chemistry, is very different from one scene to the next. So that, that I can imagine there were many complications in sorting all of that out.
1: Yeah, we had to have a lot of, in the room, we had to have conversations about what, what levels of intimacy are you comfortable with, with our romantic couple. With our non-romantic couple, they also both happened to be Filipino, which was not something that we were seeking. It's just where we landed as far as what we wanted to hear, what we wanted to say, And so we talked a little bit about, do we want to explore the fact that you are two Filipino people living in New York City, that you might have some shared history because of that, because the Philippines is, you know, such a small island. So we discussed that. We discussed all kinds of things, and we put a a lot of effort into creating intimate relationships. We spent the first day of rehearsal watching videos about trauma, watching videos about the time period, watching videos about anything to do with the story of the play, not to give anything away. Um,
0: No, we don't do spoiler alerts. We do everything, we do teases only, exclusively.
1: So we did a lot of work, Um, you know, the director does a lot of that deep dive into the time and the cultural aspects of the time and the cultural aspects of the characters. And then I I tried to really spend a lot of time sharing that with the cast. And, And I think we landed in a really nice place. The wayward artists are also very committed to inclusion, diversity, equity, and it's the idea committee. And so we also did a deep dive on improving our work environments, what to do if we feel threatened as artists of color, what to do if we feel threatened as an artist in general, um, what to do if we feel uncomfortable with the situation, who do we go to, how do we talk about this? And our wonderful idea rep, Reed Flores, we created a company contract where we promised that we would be brave and we would express ourselves and we would also try to approach things with sensitivity, but also not censor ourselves. we, We spent a lot of time building the relationship and just on the first day. And then of course you get into rehearsals and it's like, what is my line? What am I doing? Where am I going? I'm sorry I got in your way. And then you have the laughs and the fun and we became a real, I mean, you know, everybody says it, but we became a family.
0: Well, let me roll back a comment you made, which I think is really an interesting place to go is there are two Filipino ethnicities that entitlements another theme, a different different levels of entitlement between your characters. And as we know that Filipino descended Americans came at different times. And so that that's kind of like, there's different types of entitlement depending on when your generation arrived in the US. And that's, that might be a kind of an underlying, what, what are they aspiring to your different Filipino characters?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, that's something that we talked about. We talked about when did Filipino Americans emigrate? Why did they emigrate? What brought them here? So we talked a lot about many Filipinos came here to join the military because they spoke English, which was very attractive to the Navy in particular. And so we talked about what regions of the country did Filipinos settle in? Because our two characters, when you when you set a show in New York, you know, there's a couple things, you know. It, <laughs> you have your transplants to New York. You have your long haulers who've lived in New York, but they grew up somewhere else. And then you've got your your native New Yorkers. And so we did spend a lot of time talking about that. We said that this one character is a native New Yorker. This one character is from California. We said that this character is from the Midwest. And we said this character is from Florida and the Midwest and the Florida characters, but they, and they were transplants. Those were my Filipino actors and they came up with their own characters' backstories we kind of honed in on them as a team and and it was fun to think about the gentleman he said he came from florida and but he moved there when he was very young so it had been a long time whereas the other character is in grad school and has just moved there from the midwest so yes. it's, it's fun to explore, you know, just because two people are Filipino doesn't mean they have the same story. And, you know, I, as a black woman come, I, I come across that as well, that theme of, you know, m- my experience is not exactly every other black person's experience. And so we, we looked at how their shared ethnicity would bring them together, but then also how their completely opposite approaches to life developed out of their own lived experience. So it was, it was fun. It was, was, for me, it was a blast. I mean, I think as a director, I'm, I'm almost an anthropologist.
0: Absolutely. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Brooke Aston, director, performer, and educator. She's director of the Wayward Artists production, Ordinary Days by Adam Guan. And this is going to be available for people to view this musical on the film that has been produced. It will be presented on July 24th on a parking garage, a parking deck at flight at the Mess Hall Market in Tustin at 8 p.m. that evening. So let's talk about some more elements. Um, he wasn't channeling Stephen Sondheim, but he was channeling Stephen Sondheim in some of your collaborations and working with Adam Bon.
1: Well, you know,
0: it's fun because right now, when
1: you license this show, it doesn't mean you get to work with Adam himself. So I hope that Adam will see our production and be very happy with it. But we've not spoken. We've not interacted. I tagged him in a post on Instagram. I hope he watches. (laughs)
0: Wow. Oh, he's going to he's going to marvel. So will the anybody be able to be on that parking deck with everybody? Are we going to be near the actors? Oh my gosh. So I how's know- that going to work?
1: So, so everybody, everybody in the company from the designers to the actors will be there that evening. They'll be in their cars. <laughs> you might be lucky to see them going to the snack bar, but anybody can buy tickets to our production. That'll be, f- so I'll be there. I'll be there in my minivan with me and my, my, my very dear friends and my husband sitting in the back of our minivan in chairs. And anybody can buy tickets by going to the waywardartist.org. And we we're hoping to fill the place up.
0: Let's see here. So we will we won't get to see meet people, but there we I mean we may see them at the snack stand. But so there's there is some um, allowance for being able to interact with them since we won't be able to applaud their film, but we will, I will be laying on my horn at certain points.
1: Well, I've never been to a show at the mess hall. So I've heard that it is lots of laying on the horn. So that's exciting. I I actually, I sing in bands and I did a drive up show very early on in the pandemic at the Anaheim packing district. And we were out on the patio and all of the audience was out in their cars. And I got to tell you, I was living for the honking, but the actors (laughs) will be there. So if you are there, Make sure you're honking for them because they are going to, you know, we, we've we been starved for that validation, all of us performers and actors. So just know that they will hear you. If you're honking at the ends of their numbers, they will hear you and they will love it.
0: Well, Brooke, the starving goes two ways.
1: <laughs> yeah. Which,
0: I mean, I get emotional watching these productions that are reaching so hard to keep the Creativity to be so nimble with and so savvy with making the most of these kinds of barriers. And so it's it, it's amazing the different ways that you directors, producers, and actors are overcoming these kinds of challenges. It's it is, and my listeners know I get emotional about these things. So I'd like to know, did you sort of sniff around or like how is everybody solving this these kinds of barriers? Did you Expose yourself to a lot of other productions?
1: Well, I've been a member of this theater community my entire life, and I've been back in Southern California. I went to New York for 11 years. I've been back in Southern California for 12 years, so I've been very blessed to be a part of this community here in Southern California, this theater community. So of course I've been watching everyone's offerings from virtual choirs to their full productions to these, what we call OBS productions where they're doing um, windows, you know, a window here of an actor who's at their house. And then the background is a picture to set the set to get the setting. Personally, I have had a ton of experience as a singer doing virtual choirs. I produced six music videos for an organization called the Young Americans that I work for on and off again with my students. And then... I participated in many virtual choirs, and then I produced a pared-down reading of Pride and Prejudice for the Long Beach Playhouse, where I did what I was saying, where it was one actor in one box, one actor in another box. They were completely remote from each other, but they were doing the reading together.
0: When was that?
1: That was at the Long Beach Playhouse, and it was part of their director's festival, so it, it should be available. Oh, that's a
0: recent one, though. That's a pandemic yes. phenomenon. Okay, okay, a pandemic
1: that's... phenomenon, exactly. Okay. So I've been watching people's Zoom plays, as we call them, the entire pandemic. And then I've also been very lucky, again, like I said, with my bands, I've been doing, I did a three camera performance with my band that was completely remote, just us alone in a room and the film crew. So I was really exposed to the process of creating theater in this remote world. And I've really grown in my knowledge. And so when Craig told me that we, I mean, not to give anything away, but when Craig told me that we were going to have to cancel Spelling Bee, which was the original slated for this slot and said, what is your dream project? What is a passion project? Something with a small cast, something with a small band. What do you want to do? Well, I just went and dug up, I, I dug into everything that was available to be produced. And I remembered this musical. I remembered the one song at the end from this musical that's so beautiful. And I thought, well, let me go look at the whole thing. And I, I gave him a list of four shows that I might want to do but this was at the top. And then anytime he thought, well, how are we going to do this? I said, you know what? We're going to make it work. You know? And We're that you work. do. Yeah, but. I have the knowledge. I have the experience. Thank you very much. I have the knowledge. I have the experience. I I think, you know, with any project, you just put together the right team. We got really, I mean, how lucky are we with these artists? Not just the artists you see on screen, but this incredible team. So, I mean, starting from the top, of course, there was Craig Tyrrell. So executive producer, essentially on this piece, everybody at the Wayward Artists. We've got our set designer, Mari Smith. We've got our sound designer, Lauren Zwiederfeld, We have our videographer, Sydney Fitzgerald, who, my God, Gosh, Sydney Raquel, we, we, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere without having some video, some beautiful video. Um, we've got our props person, Natalie Silva. We had our incredible lighting designers, Rin and Camille. And then of course, my incredible stage manager, who uh, this is our second production working together, Janelle Huck and gosh, my music director, who I had never met before. We were ships passing in the night in this Mm -hmm. community. We finally got to work together, Stephen Holsey, who just demanded excellence. And I think he did such a wonderful job supporting and whipping them into shape. (laughs) So it, it just was such a, it was such a gift to get, get such a beautiful team to put together this really beautiful show that I really love so much.
0: The Huck and Hulsey team, that's a package there. So the pianist, so where was the pianist when you were filming the acting singing?
1: Oh man, well, that was a journey. So we thought maybe we would put them, in order to isolate the sound, we thought we'd put them in another, Stephen, our music director slash band. We thought we'd put them in another room. We thought we'd bring them in the room. So we finally did. We took a few seats out of the seating there at Grand Central, Eventually, we were able to borrow some body mics from the Costa Mesa Playhouse. Whoop, whoop, shout out. Um, Mm -hmm. And we put the piano in the room with the actors. So he was able to kind of conduct and feel the actors. And when you watch it, you really can tell this is a live experience. And and I really do love that. Yeah. It's not perfect. It's not.
0: I think. I think it's perfect enough. I, it's and and you're the the piano's the perfect vehicle that moves us on through the action, the storyline, the the different uh, couples' dynamics, and the scenery that we see around that keeps the vigor the vigor of the Big Apple present.
1: Yeah, I think perfection is boring. So I love that it's real. We did that shoot in about two days so we did an eight hour day and a four hour day and perfection is boring if you want to see live theater you want to see live theater so i love how how it's real
0: so back to in the sound aspect now and we were talking earlier about honking back at the film yeah. at the the deck there the hall market deck that so i don't know if you produced it so that you could allow the because the horns don't come the honking is going to maybe mask some of the performance if we're, we're not in and out fast enough with our honks of appreciation. Yeah,
1: that is very funny because I, um, I had always had a vision for how we would transition from song to song. And when I got the first cutback from our videographer editor, I told her it's a little too fast because people are gonna to wanna to respond. And she said, I don't know. And I asked my husband who's, who's very knowledgeable about this. I said, doesn't it feel fast? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, I'm the director and it's too fast. We need to put some space there for people to digest and at the drive-in to respond. So yeah, there's some space there. And I got to do some, I, I don't know how much I wanna give away, but I, I got to have some fun with
0: those transitions in between the songs. Okay, and that is the tease, folks. You're going to see some lovely, lovely kinds of techniques and visuals and things like that. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm in the service of this digging out, and, and it's a recent conversation I had, Brooke, with a couple of different groups of people. We were treated to a jazz performance in a very intimate setting of a person's home. There were maybe about 25 or 30 of us. And so afterward we were bantering with the jazz performers and the topic came up about audience responses. And I I wanna open that topic up with you. I don't know if in Black American circles, cultural circles, or if you spent very much time as a Black woman in the South, but I was forever changed by the callback response of group gatherings it was church services or performances in the South where I, I lived a while in North Carolina and in North Florida. So the callback response makes for different audiences in different cultural areas. How much have you thought about that with how you had to, how you create your art forms?
1: Well, it's interesting that that is such a funny if- it's such an interesting way to think about it, right? Because I had said earlier how, you know, my, my experience as a black woman might be different than another person's experience as a black woman. And I was raised Catholic and I was raised singing those hymns, which are, are much more muted and specific. I was raised on Rodgers and Hammerstein. I was raised in Southern California. I We moved here when I was nine from Chicago, from a suburb outside of Chicago. And funny enough, I've, I remember vividly the first time I was in kind of the call and response black church. I was maybe in fifth grade. And I had never experienced that live and I was nine years old the first time i had experienced responding to the minister at church responding and and I was taken aback and my mom just laughed at me and said oh man I need to take you around more black folk and I said uh maybe yeah
0: <laughs> well if you were nine that that was probably an imprinting experience for you it
1: truly was and and as I've grown in my acceptance of who I am as a whole person I have such an appreciation for the many facets of the Black experience. And I certainly love shows that tell stories about the Black experience. I'm looking for shows right now to direct in the next season. But my, my experience as a Black woman is always going to color my approach to any show. This show is fun. It's written in a traditional well, a traditional but contemporary musical theater style. You've made allusions to Stephen Sondheim several times, but I love it because it's it's conversational. And what I said before we cast the show was if we cast this role as a queer black man who moved to New York from the South or we cast this role as a, you know, an Italian woman from the Bronx, I want to, it to sound like those people singing these songs. I don't want to take some people, some actors and make them sound like the original recording. And I think I can say right now that that's a commitment that I'm going to make for the rest of my career as a director. I want you to bring yourself as an actor to the material, not the other way around. So... And, and no matter what the show is, I think that's possible, you know, no matter how specific or general our shows a little is, is a big blank slate, you know, we get to color in and in, in any way we like with this show. But I think even if a show is very specific, I think I always want the actor to bring their voice to this character and not try to fit them into what the original cast did so. I'm always gonna bring the black experience. I'm always gonna bring my experience as someone who says dude on a regular basis to, to anything I, I do, so yeah.
0: Yes, and I, I think they did own every single word they sang such that when we recall the performance, we don't think of it as a musical. We think of it as a tight, poetic, conversational delivery.
1: Yeah, right. It's almost Molière there. It's it's almost
0: interesting. Wow! For those of you who've just joined us on digging out, my guest is director, performer, and educator Brooke Aston with "Ordinary Days" to be presented July twenty fourth at the Miss Hall Market at Flight in Tustin eight. 8- p.m. that evening and another reminder in this this refrain of who you are another reminder of where tickets are available
1: yes so you can go to the waywardartist.org to purchase your tickets to come see us at flight we'll be out there in the audience too so lay on the horns
0: and let us know you're out there well, we definitely will be doing that. I don't know what uh, kinds of uh, manuals we have for that, since we're all, we're all coming with different levels of consumption of plays in the pandemic and different now, different stagings. So, um, yes. So let's talk about now the, more of the debris here of the pandemic about what this year has been like Maintaining, keeping your creative chops, your performing chops, and same thing with your actors in ordinary days. And the the Gypsy Jazz Ensemble that I mentioned earlier, that was staged in a very intimate setting, was just last Saturday. Hmm. That they talked about it was kind of kind of a rusty, you know, disheveling, just uh, dis- undisheveling experience to get their creative chops, performer chops, back up and running. How? Can you, can you tell any stories about how that's been for your ensemble and for you?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I, not to speak on their behalf, but my ensemble definitely came into the room that first rehearsal saying things like, Ooh, it's been a minute <laughs> and those eyebrows raised. And I have, I will have that tomorrow and gosh, I haven't had to. Think about how to navigate this particular part of my singing voice in a long time. And um, there were lots of conversations about I just got to dust the cobwebs off these old vocal cords <laughs> from my ensemble, which was. Fine, because we were all in it together. We were just so excited to be doing something together. It also was interesting, until we filmed, we stayed in masks, at least in face shields. Um, We had our, Mari Smith uh, did a double role as our set designer and our COVID compliance officer. So we were in- masks, you know, the entire rehearsal process until we got into the space. And then only if someone was singing alone on stage, were they taking off their masks until we filmed this project. So that's another thing to navigate because trying to project, trying to, I promise you I'm smiling. I promise you I'm performing. Not for me as the director, because I knew they were giving it their all. Um, for them, just feeling like, am I communicating what I'm wanting to communicate
0: through this mask. And you know, 90% of the time they were. Right, so- and as you said, the play was done in 2006. And right. so how convincing is it if they're performing in the rehearsal, they're looking through a, a mask and a shield and they're, they're sort of moving into a greater intimacy acceptance in the, their, you know, the, the housing arrangement they're negotiating. So it's, uh, that's a whole layer of oddness for them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, digging out is
1: is the theme here, right? Uh, digging out of this pandemic and trying to figure out how to make art while we're staying safe and, and keeping each other safe has been a whole thing. So you'll see productions out there where they have these fancy plastic masks that sit like sunglasses, except the part that blocks part of your face is over your mouth. You'll see people doing masks that have a, a vinyl or see-through plastic window in the middle of the mask. And um, we were just really happy to be able to have moved past that June 15th date and and be able to do all of our due diligence to keep each other healthy and do the show without those um, caveats because we were testing, sanitizing, masking when we were not on stage. All of the staff was masked 100% of the time, uh, hand washing breaks, things like that. So we did our due diligence in that. And, and I think that was something that, that took our actors a little a little time. For me, the pandemic was, of course, a curse. I was at Disneyland. I was a cast member at Disneyland, yes. and I was let go from there, um, as many many people were. I had my teaching job, and I had to go from teaching performing arts in person to teaching performing arts via Zoom, which was had its own incredible challenges. I told Craig, the artistic director, that. For one thing, I've acquired many new skills, which, which have really helped me, which really helped me with this project specifically. Um, I was able go ahead and tell us. Oh, sure. Um, My sweet husband bought me a film editing software so i got pretty quick at being able to do that so i was editing my own videos uh there's some videos of me on instagram i did a project where i sang a song a day in may that first may of the pandemic um so i was able to edit that way i was able to edit Sizzle reels for my teaching job. For um, anyone who needed to see a commercial of what
0: we were working on, I was able Sizzle to- reel is that that's oh, an it's an industry term. There is that a, a, a sizzle reel is sort of a lure, but not a complete ad. But it's just sort of a a yeah, teaser.
1: It's a It's a commercial. It's a teaser. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a preview for a movie. You'll see a preview for a movie. You get the idea of kind of what the movie is. You hear the funniest line and then bing, bang, boom. And that's all you get. So I was, I was creating those for, for my bosses at the young Americans. I was, um, I also was, um, like I said, part of many virtual choirs. So I was really able to hone my process for virtual choirs, um, as a singer in different virtual choirs, because when you see a virtual choir being individual singers, In boxes at their homes singing together. There's a lot of ways to go about doing that, capturing the audio, capturing the video. And because I'd had such extensive experience when I then went to produce several virtual choirs, I created a process that's the Brooke Aston Sings process, to coin a term. I created documents. I I went into those projects with a lot of experience. I knew to explain to my cast members in those virtual projects um, you have to record this either under a blanket or in your walk-in closet you can't just do it in your living room um I was able to teach people about how to light themselves if they don't have that professional lighting setup. Well, you can get three lamps and put them in front of you. Just go get the lamp off your mom's uh, coffee, you know, nightstand, um, things like that. So I learned a lot about production. Uh, many of my friends who are actors pivoted into voiceover during this time. So I also started studying about voiceover and getting different microphones. And so now I feel very confident when anybody asks me to do something remotely that I'll be able. To give them a nice quality product. I also was very overcommitted when the pandemic happened. And I mean, that's nothing to complain about as an artist, you know, having so much to do, but I really was not balancing my family life. I have two sweet little boys and a husband with my career. And I really was able to reset because of the pandemic. Then of course, six months later, that itch comes and you say, I just need to be making art. I need to be doing something. I miss the crowds. I miss the people. But it, it, it was a nice reset for me. So as I'm digging out of this pandemic time and we, we start to go back in, in person, I think something that I really learned was that it's okay to say no and that it's okay to take care of yourself before you, you know, kill yourself for your art, because you'll be able to make art.
0: So I, and recently I heard Christian McBride say that there was an opportunity for him just to stay in one place when the pandemic started to shut down the creative opportunities. And I guess he tours uh, more days than there are years. And he, he actually had a moment just to stay, just, quiet down all of that. So, so I imagine with your being overcommitted, you were having the Christian McBride experience in the beginning too.
1: Yeah. Where I got to be quiet. I got to be, you know, bored. I got to revisit projects that I had an idea about, but never was able to execute because it was just too much. Um, so I got to really revisit, what i wanted to prioritize as an artist and um, i think i'm i think i'm coming out of things in a better place than i was
0: when i went in did your children were they uh, tasked like with uh, some of the a listers that were uh, were are known on the television world did your children have any kind of production piece did my kids do anything in the performing arts oh no my kids have no time for the arts <laughs> no i didn't know like well with Stephen Colbert's family, somebody who's holding the, the extra light source and the, the bounce back screens, oh, yeah. and all, all of those families were tasked with things for a little while. And then they were all very honest that their kids just walked off the set. They, you know, we're, we're not unionized, dad, mom, we're, we're out of here. But I don't know if you had your children do some element of that, or maybe their production contribution was giving you a quiet production venue.
1: Yeah. So my sweet children did have to navigate mom's in the garage. That means you can't come in here because I'm on a call. They had to learn that they have to put on pants just in case mom is on a video conference with someone. And um nice, my, my seven-year-old did help me do a photo shoot that. Uh, okay. Yeah, he did. He pushed the button and I said, come on
0: one more. And he said, I'm out of here, mom. Yeah. Yeah. They it's a, it's a pay negotiation. Yeah. So, for sure. Well, and are there any other sorts of challenges you want to relay, other kinds of coming back? Uh, maybe something you've learned, Brooke, that you're, not, you're just not settling on that. You're not going to do it, that anymore. That something is no longer a part of what you're, uh, you're willing to do.
1: Yeah. This year has been, has been a year for that. Um, I think in the broader world in the country, um, and then in my personal life as an artist and, and one of the things we really addressed early on in this process was that the best way to get a good performance out of an actor is never in my rehearsal space going to be through abuse or shame through raised voices or, um, or any kind of toxicity. Uh, That's something that I've been able to really hone in on as one of my priorities as a director. I also have really been able to hone in on, in the past I've been made to feel that doing the work as an actor was a producer or director doing me a favor instead of the relationship being mutually beneficial. And so whenever I approach my actors, I want everyone to feel that our relationship is mutually beneficial. I'm not doing them a favor, they're not doing me a favor. We're working together to create something beautiful and reflective of society, reflective of whatever we're working on at the time. So that's something I've really been able to sit quietly and consider and realize that that is something that I am completely and totally committed to. These are mutually beneficial relationships. Director-actor relationships are for everyone to thrive. And I just I, I hope that everyone does thrive and feels that they're thriving in their art and in
0: their vision when they work with me. I'm imagining Brooke that that mutual understanding and contribution can be very contagious. I hope so. <laughs> OK, wow. Manuals are flying out the door because we're certainly treated to a great deal of press coverage about where the toxicity and I'm just we're talking about entertainment only. I'm not even mentioning other sectors, but where toxicity in the entertainment sector has has been the de rigor, uh sort of means of operating and let. Yeah. And let's hope that what you're reckoning is. I, I don't imagine you're. <laughs> whether whether there was some sort of um some reckoning on your part that but there are many others that have a deep deep reckoning let's hope that this message is a, a rather expansive and widely accepted throughout the industry but i i don't know are you hopeful that that it, the industry is is deeply committed committing to a change in workplace culture or do you think oh, there's too many types that are going to try to roll it back a bit.
1: I think with any cultural issue, there's going to be fits and starts. We're in fits and starts. I I also think that, you know, I allow for the possibility that we're going too far and too, um, too safe and too, too, um, too clean and too, you know, I allow for that possibility. What I always say to people when we talk about it though, is, we have to allow some grace for the fact that we're in the middle of this conversation about what is appropriate, who we are honoring, who we are allowing the opportunity. Um, we're in the middle of the conversation. And if you think that we should be at the end of it, then I don't think that you had enough of the conversation. So I'm hopeful that we're we're getting somewhere with the culture in the arts, um, in this regard, and in, in the way we treat women, the way we treat people of color, the way we treat uh, the LGBT community, representation of Asian artists, actors in particular, um, representation of 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 any number of groups that have are that are historically underrepresented in this business, um, I'm hoping that we're moving to a place where. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. As a woman, I've been trying to break into the directing scene m- since my 20s. And I, I do think that the thing that slowed my progress was that they didn't take me seriously because I was a black woman. And I think we're moving into a place where that's not going to be the case anymore, where I will, and I'm hopeful,
0: I am hopeful. So as part of this reckoning and getting out of, climbing out of this pandemic, Are there some programs that you think are particularly effective in offering resources, financial support to creatives in the U.S.? There are other countries that take much better care of their creatives, but in the sort of the spirit of the Works Progress Administration or other kinds of things, are are you seeing some good faith efforts to support creatives or are there some programs that you think come on now let's let's open it up it's 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 the time now let's let's be more generous usa
1: oh man well i mean there always could be more money
0: (laughs) i don't think anybody in any business is is
1: comfortable with you know the amount but i i i do think you know the california arts council has offered a lot of grants We've had grants that were through the state for nonprofit arts organizations, Save the Stage comes to mind. Um, I think that we're getting there. What I do notice is that my friends who work in opera are have always been able to go to competitions that had high price tags if you were the winner of that competition. And we just don't see that in musical theater. And I wonder why, and I wonder why that old money, that bigger money, that more expansive money does not make its way to the theater. I don't know why we don't get that support from philanthropists the way that I feel that my classical friends do, but anybody in the arts will tell you that if you are a philanthropist, if you have money to give, please, please,
0: please always think about supporting the arts. Well, and is there anything in the kind of works progress administration that's That's coming. uh, It's probably not fast enough, but that is a promising support that may be a sustained support for the arts in the U.S.
1: Oh, gosh. Well, uh, you know, I don't know about in the U.S., but there's another, there's an assembly bill, AB5, which was uh, to help protect workers who were unfairly being classified as independent contractors. Unfortunately, the writing of that law really devastated a lot of the smaller theater companies, opera companies throughout the state. And so now I have been um, in touch with a friend who's advocating for SB805, which is a Save Our Stage initiative, which would provide sustaining funding from the state for the small theaters throughout the state. And I am a huge proponent of SB 805. And I hope that our California Assembly and our California Senate will pass SB 805. So everybody write your state senator and your
0: state assembly person. So the status of that so that we know, and I can bring that up in not just interviews, but in conversations. So SB 805, is it's a bill continued from the earlier part of the session, not from a previous session. So if the budget doesn't carry it in this session, can it carry forward into the next year?
1: I believe it can carry forward into the next year. I know that they just had the public hearing. We had calls from our community organizers to listen and call in and write in just recently in the last few weeks. So I do believe that we are looking to, to see it pass the assembly and the, the Senate next. So- Okay, um, good. The community organizers that I know are very hopeful um, and still calling for support on social media platforms and things like that. So yes, there's still hope that this will will happen. And, and my understanding of it is not vast, but my understanding is that it is long-term assistance to the smaller stages here in California.
0: And I just am, um, this experience of the small stages, for those of you listening who haven't treated yourself to them, there is a remarkable chemistry, alchemy between performer and audience that just warrants, just deserves all the support we can. And that listeners need to experience that kind of creative performance. And as I express it to Craig Tyrrell when I have him on or to my director, dear friend, Jane Page, that it's like in that experience, I feel like I've, i I become a sort of a putty in the hand of that production and i just feel that emotional punch i just get squished in the palm of that performer by the end of the production it's just it's a phenomenal emotional kind of a delivery that i just it's a very remarkable feeling and the intimacy of the small theater is it's not replicable in any kind of other situation it's like a mini church a mini temple
1: Yeah, it's really, there's nothing like being a performer and and knowing that you have the audience in the palm of your hand, knowing that you can manipulate this laugh and that you can make this point and you can get an ooh out of the audience. I mean, it's just magical. There's
0: nothing like it. So to wrap up our time together, I'd just like to find out how was it that you were able to get your actors in Ordinary Days to go through those two film Shoots to make the play, the musical that we will see next Saturday, July 24th. How were they able to conjure up the oohs and the ahs of that intimate experience that might have been there but wasn't there?
1: We asked their parents to come. <laughs> We, um, I I knew that they needed an audience about a week before we were, they were ready for an audience about a week before. In in any process, when you're doing theater, you have to get the show ready and then you turn it over to the designers in the set because it's really, it's a whole nother beast to add props and costumes and sets and blah, 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 even in a small space like Grand Central. So the Saturday before we went into what is called tech, that's the technical rehearsal, We told the cast that they were allowed to invite two people each and they had to remain masked and socially distanced in that tiny little space, but they should come and they should watch the show. And I told the cast before that run of the show, I said, this is your chance to get that muscle memory of what it feels like for someone to laugh at the jokes or someone to tear up because of what you're singing. Um, This is your chance to remember what it's like so that when we have the cameras and we all have to be silent for sound you remember what it's like so yeah we did a couple little little runs
0: with small very small i mean audience of of eight so that's the run but the final one that's filmed it's there is no audience there that's
1: right it's just the wow actors, the actors doing their job film actors a- do it all the time theater actors can too
0: Oh my goodness what a heavy lift. Well, I'm I'm thank you there were sages, there were clowns, there were drama queens, there were I'm not sure all the kinds of dynamics going. It was all there in ordinary days an extraordinary experience awaits all of us. Thank you so much for all your time today Brooke Aston and congratulations on a job exquisitely done. Thank you so much. My guest was director, performer, and educator, Brooke Aston, presenting this next July 24th, Ordinary Days, written by Adam Guam. Thanks again. After our interview, Brooke did reach out and had this thought about body positivity, and I quote her, When casting the show, I was looking to represent New York in the mid-2000s as I experienced it. The body types of the actors that we landed on weren't really a part of the conversation when picking the actors. I didn't cast them to make a statement using their bodies as a pulpit. I cast them because they were talented and authentic. If people see themselves in the individuals whom we cast, and they feel more positive toward their own bodies, then it is certainly a bonus. End of quote. We're going out now with the closing song of Ordinary Days, Enjoy that. And for next week's show, I'm directing our attention to the pile heaped by our very own Orange County Board of Supervisors. I'm working on just the perfect analyst to take apart all aspects of their leadership as it pertains to our health, safety, and general civility. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. The color of
1: Saturdays here at the Met.
0: The color of shouting from rooftops. You bet. The color of feeling that life is okay. The color of an ordinary day.